This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Anne Ulizio, Director of Special Projects for Art Street Press, and I will be your host today. Today, our guest is Sophia Sunwoo, co-founder and CEO of The Water Collective, an organization that employs a big-picture approach to the global water crisis. It has been instrumental in providing and securing long-lasting clean water for communities in need through robust solutions and economic empowerment initiatives in 13 different sub-Saharan locations. The approach focuses on maximizing longevity of solutions that integrate life cycle costs and also coincide with existing community collectives. The model also emphasizes the power of placing project construction in the hands of the community members that the project benefits, as well as the power of collaboration. Since its founding in 2011, the Water Collective has secured clean water for 25,000 people. In 2013 alone, the Water Collective fixed broken water projects affecting over 19,000 people and established new clean water systems reaching 7,000 people. Sophia herself comes from an extensive background in business development and project management. She developed and executed million-dollar projects for several Fortune 500 companies before her work with the Water Collective. She built her first company when she was only 19 years old and sold it shortly after her 23rd birthday in 2010. She studied design and business at Parsons School of Design in New York City, where she capped off her studies with a dissertation on the use of business strategies in disaster response systems for developing communities. Her work at the Water Collective, along with her co-founder, Josh Bronstein, has been profiled in Capital File Magazine, Conscious Magazine, and in 2013, in April, Sophia was featured as the key speaker at the New York Young Women's Social Entrepreneurs Dinner, How Does She Do It? So, Sophia, it's such a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Of course. So your studies in design and business uh, seem to have acted as a springboard for your work and your interest in founding the Water Collective. Can you talk to us a little bit about your initial interest in the desi- in design prior to your undergraduate studies? Sure. Um, so growing up, I was actually trained as an artist. So my interest in design actually stemmed from my childhood. Um, and when I got older, I kind of wanted to utilize um, art and into something more practical and I think with design um, especially like in the 2000s um, a lot of design schools were finding intersections between design business science psychology so um, yeah it was the time when I was in school it was really great because I had the ability to kind of explore all these intersections with design Um, and yeah, my father was, um, he's also has an incredible mind for business. So that's kind of where my, um, desire to study business came from. Uh, so yeah, um, it was kind of like a natural, um, next step for me to kind of go to school to study both of those things. Interesting. And you said your, so your father came from sort of a business background. Do you think you got a more creative design concept side from someone else in your family or potentially a role model when you were younger? Um, it actually came from my mother. Um, my mom's father used to be a painter, so um, it definitely stemmed from her, absolutely. 
And so your thesis, uh, I mentioned before, it was a dissertation on the use of business strategies in disaster response systems for developing communities. Can you tell us a little bit more about this work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was in school, what was great was that uh, my professors kind of really let me explore what I wanted to do. There weren't really any restrictions and um, they kind of let us be free with that. So I really wanted to look at this complex um, topic of disaster protection and prevention. This was like right around the time that Katrina happened in the States. Um, so it was something that was really interesting to me because um, in the US, um, obviously when there's a natural disaster, um, we have systems in place. Um, we have first response systems like, you know, um, the fire department and police department to kind of control certain aspects. But in the developing world, you don't have those systems in place. So um, I really wanted to look at, okay, how do we um, how do we help people protect themselves in these types of situations when you're living in an area that's resource constrained? Um, and just to make it a little bit more interesting, I wanted to integrate business and design strategies to see if there are any innovations that can be um, uh, resulted from that. Um, so I looked at um, developing countries in particular. Um, it had to be areas that had no first response systems, no police, no n not immediately police in the area or um, hospitals that, you know, have ambulances. Um, and I wanted to figure out how do people protect themselves when they do face a natural disaster. Um, and I ended up developing this curriculum that was scalable um, that really um, put community-led protection at the forefront of the curriculum. Um, so it utilizes it utilized a lot of um, like EMT work, which is, um, I looked at a lot of like EMT guides and looking at how, um, you know, people who aren't, you know, technically doctors, how do they go about um, quickly fixing uh, health related problems on the ground? Uh, so, yeah, I did things like that and I actually ended up designing this system within a community where, you know, there were, um, leaders appointed in the community and then from there they were responsible for certain quarters of a community and because what I found in my research that um, it wasn't really the disaster itself that led to a lot of the damage it had a lot to do with education you know people understanding if there's an earthquake you need to stand in a corner and not move around a lot because the majority of the accidents happen when you move around and then after the fact um, a lot of what fell through for people was the fact that there was no one checking up on them and that's when you know people end up with um, injuries that are left unattended to and that leads to something more serious so it was this human aspect that I kept seeing coming up in my research um, and yeah and that was kind of uh, something that um, I learned so much from and really just intellectually stimulated me and kind of led me to kind of led me to where I am today for sure. So interesting. Like you said, the it seems like it's more of a structural problem, not the disaster itself, you know, lack of education initiatives or infrastructural um, 
infrastructural initiatives in terms of leadership and management of a community that's very interesting it's it's cool how it sort of you know started out as started out as a very multifaceted project but it definitely picked up some extra um extra aspects along the way that must have been very interesting for you how did the thesis sort of transform into your your initiative for the water collective itself what i was seeing um was that it wasn't all these uh you know intense solutions that people were dreaming up of uh protecting you know let's design this building that you know is fortified against earthquakes and things like that like sure that really helps but uh when you're resource constrained, you don't have access to those things and technologies. Um, and I was seeing this in the developing world as well. A lot of the um, poverty-related causes um, that communities are facing, um, it has very little to do. I mean, this is overgeneralizing for sure. So please do not um, take this with a grain of salt. But um, you know, you can think of like the best technologies and the you know, things like that to address these issues. But what was really interesting to me that I kept seeing was that there's a simple aspect, which is the human aspect that leads to the failure of a lot of development projects. Um, And a lot of people don't, you know, fund it that much or pay attention to it that much because it's something that's so hard to conceptualize when you're trying to um, talk to it about with donors. But with technologies, it's very easy to do. It's something that you can see, you can touch, Um, you can visualize um, as a solution. Um, So, yeah, when we um, were conceptualizing the idea behind Water Collective, um, a lot of um, what we were seeing, this human aspect, you know, with water projects, so many fail, you know, 30% fail after two to five years. Um, And my, what I learned in my thesis carried a lot, carried over a lot to um, when we were developing Water Collective, like, Absolutely, um, solutions, the quality of the solutions are important, but at the end of the day, we need to make sure that this human component and activating people and motivating them is at the forefront of um, our water projects. It necessitates a flexibility in the model for sure. You know, you come in with an idea that's well-founded, well-researched, and will be successful, but at the same time, you have to take into account, like you said, this human aspect that can certainly bring on some unprecedented challenges or unforeseen circumstances, things of that nature. So that's very interesting. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about how you and Josh first got connected and decided to work together? My job previous, I was at a corporate art consulting firm and a coworker of mine knew about, you know, my interests and, um, in development projects and she connected me with Josh um, and it was interesting because um, I actually gave my two weeks the around the time that I met Josh so um, you know my curiosity for my thesis and just my interest in the field I really it was something that I really wanted to pursue um, but it was you know I had absolutely like no next plan or things like that I kind of just went with it um, and it was funny because around that, at that time when I gave me two weeks, it was actually when I met Josh, um, and he started speaking with me about, um, you know, Josh has been working with water projects since he was 15, um, all over Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, and he was talking about, you know, I've always wanted, wanted to 
started a water organization and this is why. Um, and he started talking more about what he was seeing on the ground and me coming from a background where I've started a business before, I know how to run it, I know how to keep it functioning. Um, it was um, kind of just like a natural, um, I guess, thing that happened from there, just like the right timing and everything and the start of Water Collective kind of snowballed from that point. Yes, seems like a very serendipitous meeting between you two and definitely yeah. <laughs> a <laughs> definitely a strong combination, like you said, sort of the background in business and the concept of water projects around the world combining to create this model. So can you tell me a little bit more and for our listeners, just maybe describe the water crisis? Yeah, uh, so the number that everyone's kind of familiar with, I'm guessing, is the um, estimated 800 million people that live without safe drinking water. Um, however, what's interesting about num- about that number is that no one has ever done like an actual survey where they've gone to every corner of the world and figured out like who doesn't have safe drinking water. Um, and a lot of uh, specialists actually believe that the number is closer to 4 billion people when it comes to not having safe drinking water. Um, yeah, because I mean like, the money you would need to conduct a study like that is outrageous. Um, so no one has attempted it yet, but yeah, they, they speculate that it's, that number is as high as 4 billion. So that's, you know, even people with water, um, that includes the number of people that even though you have water, it's not safe for them to drink. Um, so on top of that number, what we were seeing at Water Collective is that okay, let's say 800 million people is where you want to start as far as people that don't have access to water. Um, If you think about, on top of that, the amount of failed water projects that have happened in the past 20 years. So in sub-Saharan Africa alone in the past 20 years, uh, more than 30% of the hand pups have failed after two to five years. So that's a 1.5 billion um, waste and investment just in sub-Saharan Africa alone. So if you, you know, expand that to the rest of the world, you know, how high that number is insanely high. Um, And then, you know, 30% of hand pumps, you translate that into actual people, the amount of people that have lost water that used to have it, that's 70 million people in sub-Saharan Africa. So um, that was something that was really hard for us to kind of accept as something that a lot of donors didn't know about. Um, you know, when you donate to a water organization, the conversation of like, how long is my donation going to run for? That's not a conversation that, uh, many people think about. Uh, so we really wanted to create an organization that addressed that question and took it into account and aware of it and not like kind of putting it under the rug, but saying we're aware of it, we're doing something about it. Um, You know, we want to create a new chapter in the water crisis and how the world sees it and address it in a different way and make it a, you know, a new standard that when you're donating to a water organization, um, you're giving it so that the water continues to flow long after it's been installed. Right. So it's both longevity and sort of transparency in, in terms of the donations. Right. Great. Mm-hmm. That's great. So obviously, the, you know, these numbers are staggering. You know, the 
baseline of 800 million people without safe drinking water, but in reality, maybe it being closer to 4 billion is just, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. But would you say that the reason to hone in specifically in sub-Saharan Africa right from the get-go was because the situation was the worst there? Was that sort of the impetus for that? Uh, for us, we um, try to focus on like the most rural and remote areas because those are the areas that don't receive a lot of aid from their government or international aid organizations. So right now we actually only work in very rural and remote communities. Um, but in regards to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, absolutely. I mean, the it, in, that con- in that area, uh, over 272 million rural dwellers don't have access compared to 54 million urban dwellers. So this like insane disparity between urban and rural was another reason for us to kind of start in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, looking through the the process and the the metrics that w- the Water Collective uses to measure the impact of these projects that you do is it's very interesting. The number of hours regained per year from water-related issues. I've never come across this metric before. Can you explain how how it works and how it allows the Water Collective to evaluate the program's uh, efficiency? Yeah, um, so for us, regaining hours is so important because we found that uh, with the communities that we work with, you know, we listen to so many people who are like, you know, I really would like to spend more time on my farms. I would really like to spend more time, you know, figuring out how to make more money for my family, but it's just time that they don't have. Or a lot of children, um, they'll actually have to get up in the morning to get water for their family because, you know, their mother or their father, they're a bit too old and the terrain to get that water is just a little bit rough. So the kids are the only ones that can collect that water. So, you know, these kids will wake up super early, go to school, and then they have to come back and they have to get water again. And then by the time that they have to do their homework, um, they have to hurry up and finish it before it gets dark. Um, So again, education is kind of affected in that respect where it's just like this aspect of time that affects um, their life on, you know, in such a insane level Um, So for us, um, having clean water, of course, there's these immediate benefits as far as health and livelihood. But, you know, we were seeing that um, people spend so much time collecting and carrying water. You know, um, in Cameroon, uh, the average family is about 10 people. So um, when you're going back and forth, back and forth, trying to collect enough water for 10 people, um, for some individuals, it can take up to eight hours a day for them. So, um, and then on top of that, there are farmers who have to collect water for their farms and um, students who actually, you know, have to get up in the middle of class and get water um, for themselves. So this aspect of time um, just impacts people on such a level that, you know, we don't even realize. Um, It's all these, like, rolling aspects and if you regain those hours for yourself you the benefits um you know it permeates into your education how you wrote how you run your business and you know for individuals to explore um different things like i I meet a lot of women who um beyond their farming because a lot of the farmers and men and women in the villages that we're in, they're subsistence farmers. So even if they're not farming for money, they have to farm to have food for their families. 
So beyond that, a lot of the women are responsible for subsistence farming. So um, I hear a lot of women who say, okay, beyond like, you know, tending to my crops to feed my children, I want to actually sell, you know, um, farm new crops where I can actually sell and make money for my family. So it's things like that where um, with new time, um, for us, it's such an important thing to understand and realize and to report on. It allows um, individuals to thrive in um, different aspects of their life that they're not able to before because, you know, the inconvenience of constantly um, traveling and gathering water, it really just creates a huge dent in people's days. I think it, it really does bridge the gap sometimes in that, you know, that basic subsistence and survival level into increasing people's livelihood at a, you know, increasing their standard of living, which I think is really interesting. And I guess along with that need-based uh, approach of not just survival, but also uh, a cultural sort of affect of the of the projects is this idea of the community empowerment around the water pumps and the projects that you that the water collective does. So this essentially ensures that the community members who benefit from the water collective projects are taking responsibility themselves for the implementation of these projects. And it seems to be one of the main pillars of the organization. That's something that you very, very much emphasize in your model and your approach. So can you talk to us a little bit about that, that community responsibility for these projects? Yeah. Um, so for us, like something that we always um, tell our communities that we work with is that this isn't our water, this is your water. And that's kind of where we um, stem our relationships with community from that statement. Um we found that in our experience that this human component is such a large contributor to whether a project succeeds or fails. Um, 50% of water projects actually fail due to a lack of community involvement. So it's a really, um, it's really like a huge determining factor. Um, you know, you can install like the most efficient water system and you can really train the brightest water committee members but at the end of the day if your community is not behind you and you don't have that support your system's not going to continue running so um, for all of our partner communities we actually required them to make a contribution to activate the partnership whether it's financial or through labor um, and this contribute this contribution really shows us that the community is ready and committed and serious about um, having water in their community and serious about um, taking on all the responsibilities that are needed to keep that system running. Have you, have you faced any, any pushback or any resistance from these communities that you've, that you visited and wanted to start projects in? Um, of course. Um, we definitely have uh, visited communities where, um, you know, they were, you know, either turned off by the requirements of the partnership or, they just thought that since we're an NGO, we should just, you know, donate all the funds and they wouldn't have to be that involved in the process. So we've definitely um, have, a, you know, approached those type of situations. But for us, um, it, it's really, it's nice because, not nice, but like it's, it's something that um, allows us to really separate the communities that we can work with and not work with. And for the communities where, you know, the um, they're kind of not into the idea of putting in a contribution, well, 
will usually happen is the partnered NGO that we work with on the ground will usually continue sensitizing them um, to the uh, aspect of participatory development and the fact that, you know, if you want to help your community grow, you have to be involved in that growth. You can't, you know, growth can't happen separately from the people living in that community. Um, so yeah, we definitely, um, uh, we definitely approach a lot of different reactions to it, but the reactions are great for us to really determine, um, if the relationship is something that, um, both sides can work with. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. Now return to our Innovate Under 30 interview with Director of Special Projects Anne Ulizio and Sophia Sun Wu, CEO and co-founder of the Water Collective. And does it take some some extra educational initiatives on your part to maybe convince these communities that their financial or labor contributions will be will be well founded and will produce the effects that they want in the future? Um. Not really, just because um, when they do make a financial contribution or a labor-related contribution, uh, they see it for themselves. That money is actually held by the uh, chief and whatever council he has in place for the handling of community funds. So those that money never goes through us. Uh, so there's that aspect that communities feel safe and confident that their money is going where it needs to go. Another key pillar of the of the approach is the focus on long-term solutions rather than rapid expansion and short-term benefits. What are the steps that you take to ensure that these projects will last? Um, so the three com- components we focus on are um, robust, appropriate systems for the water itself, uh, economic empowerment, and community participa- participation. So... Um, when I talk about robust, robust, appropriate systems for the delivery of water, um, so the community is just to paint a picture. The communities that we work with, they usually have no electricity. Um, they're usually um, a couple miles out from a city. So, and when I say city, just like the very minimal, your minimal idea of what a city would look like. Um, they're usually at most. Um, my a community that we have that's the furthest from a city is probably by like three hours, no, three or four hours. Um, so these are communities that, you know, as far as resources go, the only thing they really have is, you know, the primary and secondary school that the government provides and a church that the government provides. And maybe if they're lucky, they'll have a health center. 
Um, but other than that, they don't really have much infrastructure. They definitely don't have any like complicated systems as complicated as a water system. So um, with our water systems, we don't use any electricity. Everything is gravity fed. Um, we don't use um, any parts or um, replacement parts that require um, a journey beyond the nearest city. Um, we make sure that all the products that compose the water system um, are things that you'll um, find nearby and things like sand and cement. It's all, you know, very rudimentary resources. Um, and that we found, what's great about that is that once we've left, um, the community members know exactly where to get those um products from. They know exactly where to find it. They know who to talk to about it. Um, so we make sure that the system that's built, it's built for the community um, it's serving. Um, it helps a lot too when um, the system's being built and um, you know the community members are building the system with the engineer. They can actually see for themselves, okay, like if a pipe breaks, this is how I fix it and I can get that part from this store over here. Um, and that's super important for us because we, we've been all around West Africa and we've seen so many projects where, oh, you know, we have this abandoned project, you know, it's been here for around 20 years, no one has used it. And the main, um, kind of culprit for that is usually like electricity was involved or, um, there was some kind of, um, complicated, chlorine that was needed for the filtration, things like that. Um, so we try to really avoid um, creating a water system uh, that's not within the realm of where the community is. Um, as far as economic empowerment goes, so what we were seeing is that, um, you know, when you have a clean water system, just like the plumbing in our house, you know, your house, if something breaks, a pipe leaks, you call a plumber and they come and they, they fix it. Um, and you need money to pay that plumber. You know, it doesn't just, the repair just doesn't happen by itself. Um, so uh, for us, um, we're like, okay, so if you're living on less than $1.50 a day, where do you get the money for that? Um, you know, keeping a clean water system running, like it's, affordable but it's you know it's definitely like an added uh line on your expense monthly expenses so we wanted to figure out you know how do we actually empower people to um, gain the financial power to keep their water system running so um we actually hold workshops where um the communities decide you know these are some you know, income generating activities that we would like to learn about. Um, these are activities that we've always been curious about and we know that there's a local market to sell these things. So um, we hold these workshops. Um, we usually hold it with um, um, NGO, on-ground NGOs who have been in um, income generating workshops for, been doing them for like 20, at least 20 years. And we usually also involve like the Ministry of Livestock and Fishery so that there is this added component of a link, a local government link where if people are have questions or need resources or need some kind of, you know, additional funding support, they can go to their local government for that support. So our most popular income generating activity workshop is actually pig farming. Um, and um, we actually hold workshop 
workshops for we've worked, hold, held workshops for uh, six communities now for pig farming, um, and um, it's something that obviously there's a market for it. It's protein. Um, when pigs have piglets, a lot there are a lot of them, so you can um, once. Once you have those pickles, you can kind of share them with your community. Um, so that's something that we do on top of providing the workshop. We'll make the initial investment of a couple of pigs so that um, communities can actually start from somewhere and have like a tangible way of implementing the skills that they learned. Um, and, you know, over time that will actually present itself as additional funds. And that's something that will go back into. So when the water committee comes around and asks for your monthly fee, or water, that money is actually coming from somewhere rather than us saying like, oh yeah, like <laughs> the water is being the water's being maintained because people are helping support it. Like we actually wanted there to be the actual the actual support to exist rather than us saying that existed. Um, and the last component is community participation. Um, we have worked actually worked with a lot of marketers to develop this aspect of our organization. Um, and I say marketers because marketers tend to, um, when they figure out their strategies, they tend to work a lot with design scientists and figuring out um, how the human psyche works as far as what motivates them, what activates them to do things. So um, with our water committee um, and things like that, um, we wanted to figure out a strategy to keep the water committee motivated to keep them feeling like their jobs are, are very important to society and that they are able to do their jobs well and will continue doing it well. So um, we've created a system where um, water committee members um, have very specific systems and processes to execute their daily, monthly, yearly needs so that the system continues to run. And then the, this outside circle of the community encouraging the work that they do, you know, community influencers like priests and chiefs and um, uh, principals from the school and elders are actually encouraging them and recognizing them publicly um, so that clean water care is emphasized and it's celebrated. So yeah, those are kind of like the three main things that we work on and implement at our projects to ensure that um, the longevity of our projects. In terms of longevity as well, how long do the do water collective staff members tend to stay on the ground for these projects? Is there a baseline period that you look towards, and then you know after that after that point? you sort of transfer it completely into the hands of community members or is there someone always on the ground? How does that work? Yeah, so we actually have someone always on the ground. Um, he actually lives in Cameroon. Um, but after a project's done, um, there's obviously like the post-installation aspects that we keep an eye on. Um, and I would say like a solid year after the project's done, there's definitely um, some monitoring to make sure that um, any problems that do arise, it's solved very quickly in the beginning so that um, it's not a reoccurring problem in the long term. Um, and then after that, um, you know, there are periodical check-ins to make sure that things are going okay. But at the end of the day, um, you know, we want these are the, the partners that we that we, the communities that we partner with, we want this water to be something that they view as their own. So, you know, we, like, as an NGO, we do have the responsibility of being hands-on and making sure that everything's going 
properly for our donors, but at the same time, we do want to be hands-off in those aspects because we want the communities to feel that this is a project of their own because it is a, you know, it's their own project. They've invested in it. Um, but yeah, we have someone on the ground who works for us. Um, he lives in a nearby city, so he's constantly on the ground, um, doing, um, project management and, um, seeing what the sentiment's like amongst community members so that, um, whenever problems do arise, we tend to fix them pretty quickly, um, and address them, um, right away so that it's not something that people feel, um, discouraged by for too long. Right. Right. So aside from this one staffer who is always on the ground, how, how else is the, what's the other sort of structural organization of the Water Collective? How many people do you have working and is it just functioning out of these field locations or is there a, a headquartered office somewhere where the staff members reconvene after, you know, being in the field? Josh and I, the co-founders, we're full-time in the U.S. Um, we're actually based out of New York. Um and beyond that, like we actually um, usually just have interns um, helping us here, and we have a very involved executive and associate board that help us with our additional needs, whether it's fundraising or management. Um, but we try to focus our resources in um, our operating locations. So we have um, the project coordinator I was speaking of in Cameroon who. Um, works a lot with project management, community relations, and then we do partner with in-country NGOs just because we're the type of organization. Another thing that we were seeing on the ground was that um, a lot of organizations tend to, you know, run their own offices, hire all this new staff when the resource is already there, you know, and that's how we see it. We see that the best development projects come from when people work together and collaborate together and kind of amplify each other's strengths. So we work with on-ground NGOs that we've been networked with and been working with for a very long time. And, um, you know, these are NGOs that have been on the ground in country for 20 plus years. So they really know what they're doing. Um, and we actually also work a lot with the American Peace Corps. Um, I think this year we're going to have about like three Peace Corps volunteers helping us with our project. So, yeah, we try to work. And, and we also have um, a couple of um, government-related officers in Cameroon that um, help us out with our projects as well. Um, so we really try to utilize everyone who's good at what they do and kind of get them, get them involved because, you know, we're not claiming to know everything. You know, we're not the best at everything. We specialize in, you know, this maintenance aspect and, you know, understanding how to keep things running. But beyond that, we can definitely utilize the strengths of other organizations and other people on the ground. And how does the, how does the funding for the projects work? You, you mentioned, you know, a board of um, executive and associate um, directors, I guess. And how does that, how does that sort of play into funding these projects, if at all? So, yeah, so um, our funding is a mix of uh, public foundation and corporate contributions and our boards help with all three aspects. Um, I will, I would say that um, a lot of it is, public contributions. So when I say public contributions, that's usually through like public and private, whether it's events, online campaigns, or donor-led fundraising. Um, 
you know, so our biggest event of the year is our December gala um, in New York City. So our both of our boards help a lot with that, um, and they help a lot with you know s- spreading our organization's work and spreading and just widening widening our network so that our public fundraising initiatives when they do when we do do them they're um, able to succeed. Um, we do one online campaign a year. This year we partner with Level Line for our online campaign with um, Global Poverty Project. So that was really. That was really great um, to kind of um, have this online component to our fundraising. And we do a lot of donor-led fundraising with um, high schools and elementary schools in the area, um, which is really great because we're able to kind of um, talk about the water crisis with um, younger folks and we're able to kind of exchange information back and forth. They're, it's, it's great because kids are very smart and... Um, um, it's just really cool for us to kind of get them involved. Um, they'll have they actually hold will hold big sales to build a tap stand at a school at one of our product locations. So that connection is really cool to be involved with. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much the grunt of it. And then the rest of it is you know um, contributions for from corporations and um, um, private foundations these 13 different locations in Africa, like you said, were the most, uh, I guess you could say the disparity between the rural dwellers and the urban dwellers was, were the highest. Um, But, you know, inherently, I'm sure these communities are very different. So how does the, how does the model itself sort of adapt to different community circumstances or cultural implications? Project can differ in so many ways, but I think the two main components that makes each project different are what are the water-related issues the community is facing and the community dynamic? So um, some examples of variations we see when it comes to water-related issues is um, we'll see a community who has had a broken water project in the village and they're essentially looking for a rehab project. Or we'll see a community where sanitation is such a huge problem for them and um when we choose the water source, the source of the water system, we need to be very careful about um, where that water source is coming from because, you know, the lay of the land in this community, for example, like all the um, bacteria from um, human waste and animal contamination, it's all draining back into the water source. Um, There are things like that. and um, the basic thing where, you know, communities, there are communities who have never had water before and they just have no frame of reference of what a water system looks like, how they're going to keep it running and things like that. Um, and, and to address those issues, um, that's kind of where, like I was mentioning before, we partner with the appropriate people. Like we kind of have these interchangeable parts where like, okay, this community has this problem these, these are the these are the three specific partners we work for that problem. So um, this is a you know for example the village with um, sanitation we work with a uh, NGO in California. Um, they come they've they're about to do two two projects with us in Cameroon now, um, and they actually work with us specifically in areas where sanitation is a gigantic issue, and you know they lend their resources and knowledge as far as sanitation goes. Um, so we kind of integrate the appropriate partners to um, address those needs 
um, according to what water-related issues the community is facing. Um, as far as community dynamics goes, um, our project coordinator was hired specifically and mainly for that reason because um, since Josh and I hold that to, it, we hold such importance for it. Um, you know, Akime, he's someone who grew up in actually one of the villages that we ended up um, partnering with on a water system. He, you know, he lived, he grew up in, he grew up with without water. He knows what it's like. Um, and um, he has a lot of family in the area. So whenever he, you know, goes into one of our partnered communities, a lot of people will recognize him or have family related to him. So, he, um, what's great about him is that um, he has the ability to recognize um, what a community needs. Like, for example, if a village has very low participation from women's groups, well, actually, well, a strategy that we usually implement in that kind of situation will pull a influential woman from another village and have her actually go to that village and speak to the woman about her experience and why. Um, water, women's involvement in water is so important and tell them about the results in her community and kind of create this like knowledge sharing um, relationship between two villages so that um, the women can kind of depend on each other in that situation. Or for example, a community dynamic where maybe like, you know, two villages are sharing a water system and they're kind of quarreling with each other for whatever reason, we might, we might get a government like divisional officer involved so that he can kind of mediate and provide authority in those situations. Cause sometimes, you know, communities will need that where they need an outside person to mediate the situation. Um, so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell, a very small nutshell, uh, how projects can differ at our location. So what do you think the biggest challenge is that the organization is facing as a whole today? Um, so we're a nonprofit startup. Um, we've been around since 2011. So um, I th it's funny because I come from the business world and, you know, at this age, the organization would probably be well-seasoned. Um, but as a nonprofit and as a startup, you're not. Like, you need at least 10 years of, of um, your organization existing to be um, respected on a certain level. So it's interesting because the biggest challenge with us is that um, we're always trying to expand as an organization, but at the same time, our funders aren't willing to support that expansion until we have more experience. So it's kind of mm. this like us like chasing our Catch tail. Too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and it's something that really can't be solved until time passes, until, you know, we build our resume more. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely a challenge for us. Absolutely. Hmm. And have you, how many projects did you start out with at the, at the get-go in 2011? Um, in locations, I, sh I should say, in Africa. started with one. And then over the years, it slowly kept growing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it started with one village and it kind of kept growing and growing from there. Is there anything else in particular that you'd like to see the Water Collective incorporate into its model or maybe change in the future? Other than like the obvious of expanding like beyond West Africa, um, our next um, our next place we'd like to expand to is India just because um, 
the circumstances are very similar to the locations we worked in as far as like the water-related issues communities face. Um, it's something that we're very familiar with. Um, so India, North India is kind of where we want to go to next. Um, and also, like, we really want to change the way our industry thinks about clean water access. We want to shift the mentality of this product-based approach where it's one time and we want to change it to a service-based approach where people are really thinking about 10 years from now, what is this water project going to look like? You know, 20 years from now, what is it going to look like? So we really want to shift the conversation towards this service-based approach and um, we'd really like to share, you know, what we've learned as far as like maintenance and post-installation programs and our what have worked and not worked for us really deliver that to our industry and in something that's very comprehensible and um, kind of share it so that everyone can you know mix and match and utilize it for their programs so that we can all kind of grow together as an industry towards um, really building long-term projects that work and keep um, clean water flowing for the communities that all of us work with. So, so one of the recurring themes in each of these interviews that we like to focus on is the concept of empathy. So what role does empathy play in your life personally and, and also the work of the Water Collective in general? Um, I think that um, empathy has been what's really differentiated us. Like for Josh and I, I think empathy was something that um, this organization was based upon. It wasn't about us creating like the coolest, biggest nonprofit organization in the world. It was more. It was more about um, you know we've seen and met with people that live in the water crisis. How do we create answers that actually work for them? How do we you know create um, a impact and imprint on their lives? that when we promise water, it's an actual promise and it's not something that kind of withers away after two years. Um, so whenever we start a project or um, start a conversation with the community, we always try to kind of get into their shoes and figure out um, what is their perception and what is their knowledge of water? Um, where do they want to go 10 years from now with their water? And really trying to get into their mindset so that from there, as an organization, our responsibility is to fill the gaps of, okay, this community wants to get to this goal. How do we fill the gaps so that they actually get there? And how do we, you know, amplify what they have so that um, they have an actual clear route of getting there and it's not something that's, you know, kind of, oh, we're gonna give you clean water forever. But we're not going to tell you how exactly you'll get there. You know, we <laughs> right. Wanted to create a clear route and frame that conversation in what they in um, according to what like their resources and whatnot, according to what they understood um, in their own framework. Um, so for us, um, empathy. Our belief is that it leads to better solutions. Um, it leads to better answers. Um, so yeah. I think that's great. And I think, too, what you said about the, the resources being accessible to community members from the get-go is a, is a, absolutely a testament to your emphasis on empathy. You know, if, if you're going to implement a project that can be 
that can exist in a community for a long period of time, you want to look at it from their perspective and say, well, you know, they don't have electricity, so why would we even <laughs> consider using it? Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's a really great thought. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. The best way to reach Sophia and to support the Water Collective's work is through thewatercollective.org. Is that right, Sophia? Yep. Perfect. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.